Joe Shockey, thanks for coming on, my friend. Well, you're welcome. Calling me from warm Arizona. When did you leave the Big Apple? I, I left. Uh, we, we lived in uh, North Jersey, just across the river. Um, uh, it was 15 years ago, I think. I continued to uh, do my New York Times column out here, which you can do from, you know, I could do from basically anywhere as long as, as long as I had an airport. Is there anything you miss about New York City? Oh yeah, I miss the uh, I miss the food. I miss the restaurant. Well, of course, everything's shut down now, but definitely the the restaurants and the uh, the theater. I miss the opera. Oh, I mean, Tucson's a nice town, but uh, it ain't New York City. Joe, what food do you miss the most? You mentioned the restaurants. What food do you crave the most being out there? Pizza. <laughs> of course, of course. So now, <laughs> I-, I wanted to have you know, elsewhere in America, they claim to have good pizza, and they don't. (laughs) And uh, even in Tucson, you'll get, oh, New York pizza, but it isn't. It's okay. It comes close. And I I, I love when they say it's it's New York pizza because we have the water from New York. That's what they love to say. (laughs) So I wanted to have you on to talk about death sentence, about the John List murders, and then I read your bio, and you've done so many other things. I'm fascinated by your life. Before we talk about your books, Vietnam veteran, what branch did you serve in? Yeah, I've been around. I was at Navy uh, in Saigon. I was on the ground. I wasn't on a ship. Uh, Navy, um, I guess it was Navy intelligence, but it wasn't particularly naval, and it certainly wasn't intelligent. That's ironic. I just had on Charlie Plum. He was um, a Vietnam vet. He was shot down and spent six years as a POW, and uh, he too became an author. So I guess that's a prerequisite oh, really? a prerequisite for uh, Vietnam vets to become authors, right? <laughs> yeah, wow. Hey, you had a very successful newspaper career, Wall Street Journal, Philadelphia Inquirer, and others. Was it always a dream of you to write books? I was, was a, an editor at the Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. and frankly, I was bored to tears. I, <laughs> I just like, I, I didn't. I just had run the, uh, reached the end of my road as a Wall Street Journal editor, and I and this John List story came up in uh, 1980. Not nine or I forget one. Eighty-nine or ninety, and I wasn't. I didn't have any particular interest in true crime. I mean, I had read um, in Cold Blood, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I, I didn't much like it, even though everybody loved it. Uh, but the, the John List story fascinated me because number one, it was close by me in New Jersey, and number two, and I think perhaps actually most importantly, I was I was fascinated by the fact that this guy. Yeah, got away for 18 years. I mean, just basically built a new life. And I thought, how did he do that? And I spent enough time retracing his steps and traveling and, you know, interviewing, just poking around his life. And I realized that in 1971, it was still possible to do that, to, to, uh, to drift west to Denver, as it was in his case, and to uh, uh, carefully construct a new identity you couldn't do it today but you could still in 1971 it didn't it didn't take that much although it seemed to me that he still looked the same and there was a national a nationwide uh you know dragnet on him and if they had looked in the place that you might have expected to find him which was that same kind of church environment they would have found him he uh, he himself was expected to be caught in 30 to first year he was expecting any any day to be caught, and then he realized that he had gotten away with it. Um, so that fascinated me. And then, as I, as I, as I looked into the, the the crime itself, 
um, uh, I, I was especially interested uh, by 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 this time he had been caught and he was in prison uh, or he was in on trial. Uh, I, I was very interested in the motive, uh, the the official the consensus in the media and in one of the uh, other books that came out about this was that he was uh, he was deeply religious and he uh, wanted to uh, as he had written in his long confession letter that he left at the crime scene he wanted to uh, send his family to heaven and I I just I knew that I I just knew that was baloney <laughs> the more I looked into John List the more I, uh, convinced I was that he was this sanctimonious uh, uh, person in. 1971. He was he was a very very conservative, uh, pro-war guy. And 1971, as you might remember, was an extremely turbulent time between generations in in this country. And it, it's always been my belief that that the, the main uh, there were two triggers, three actually, uh, that led John List to, to do this horrible massacre of his family. Number one was his wife was was an alcoholic, but she also was very sick, and uh, uh, that was a problem for him. Uh, number two was the the sixteen year old daughter, a nice kid. I mean, I you know I got to know all the people who uh, the, the you know the kids who knew her, uh, but a, a kid of the the seventies, if not the sixties, uh, and whenever she walked in the door the the sixties and the early seventies walked in with her and I, I believe that was a real trigger for him. Uh and then there there was just greed. He was a he was a sanctimonious but selfish, greedy guy. He thought the world owed him a living. Uh he was just kind of a pathetic character in that in that sense. I mean nobody ever expected him to do what he did. Uh he wasn't very well liked and uh, he was he was an object of some disdain in the neighborhood. He was always wearing a suit and tie even did that when he was mowing the lawn. Uh, I, I believe firmly that he had he had got himself into a, into a real jam in in West uh, Westfield, New Jersey, where he finally, you know where he finally landed uh, with his family. And I think that I'm I'm actually convinced of this that he just wanted to wipe the slate clean and start all over with a with a clean slate. And that's what he did. I, and if you want the motives, it's the wife, the daughter, and and the uh, the uh, absolute uh, desire to uh, have a clean slate, and his idea of how to do that was to uh, massacre his three children, his wife, and his mother on one horrible day in November of 1971. He planned the the, the murder in in some detail. I mean, this was a it was a cunning guy in that sense. He wasn't very smart, but he was cunning, uh, and he set things up. He had uh, he had signaled to the kids particularly to Patty, the 16-year-old, that they were going to die. And Patty was terrified, uh, you know, in the months right before before the murder. And she sought uh, counsel, you know, with uh, a, 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 a teacher and, and others who basically said, well, no, all parents say I'm going to kill you. Uh, one of these days I'm going to kill you. And uh, But it turned out that Patty was right on the, right on the nose. And when he did it, it was a you know a dark and snowy kind of light snow day. He uh, they he, they had bought some of the stories referred to this as a mansion. It was a big house that had been part of an estate, and it looked like a mansion, but it was it was sort of a 
uh, a dump. Uh, it, you know, it was a mansion that, that had seen better days, and when they bought it, they got it. Uh, they got it at a pretty good, a pretty good price, and it had a lot of maintenance. But it had like 17 rooms, and one of the rooms was a ballroom that, in its greater days, it was a you know a grand ballroom, but it was basically a drafty, empty ballroom when uh, uh, when the, the murders happened. And he dragged after he shot the kids as they came one by one as they came, came home from school and he shot the wife first and then the kids one by one he dragged the bodies of the four the wife and the three kids into the ballroom and he arranged them there in front of the, the fireplace and then he bounded up the steps to where his his, his aged mother lived in a, a mother-in-law apartment on the top part of the house and he uh he shot her to death there and he, she was heavy so he was she was too heavy to drag down the steps, he said. So he left, left her there. <laughs> and then, then he goes and leaves a note. I mean, he he makes lunch for himself he, the, uh, while this is going on, as as the kids are coming home. Uh, and after it's all done, he he writes a note to his pastor at uh, this kind of uh, conservative uh, church that that he had, it was not a deeply conservative. It was a normal mainstream church, but it was a conservative uh, branch of the, of the uh, Lutheran Church. Uh, and he writes a note to the pastor, a five-page, as I recall, a five-page note, uh, in which he lays out his, his uh, purported reasons for uh, uh, doing what he did. He, he admits to everything. Uh, and basically, as I said, he was sanctimonious. And he was a liar, too. He, you couldn't believe anything this guy said. He, uh, he laid down that he had done this, for, that he was in dire financial straits, and he didn't want the, uh, the family to become destitute. And uh, he did this so that they, they were starting to drift away from, uh, from uh, uh, God and uh, the daughter and the wife in particular. And, and they were, you know, and uh, this was by way of salvaging their souls. Now, the, the media and, and, and some of the accounts, including one of the, the, one of the books that competed with mine, bought that. I never bought that. I just thought, well, wait a minute, <laughs> I don't buy that for a second. You know? <laughs> this guy was just, he was just a greedy, no good, sanctimonious bum who uh, decided he needed to get rid of it. His family was a real burden on him. But it took, it, here's where I really got interested. He then uh, disappears. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to how he, 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 uh, he turns the the uh, the heat down. This is November. Turns the heat down on this big ramshackle house, and he scoots. He skedaddles. He's out. You know, he disappears. And uh, you, uh, he thought, and anyone would think that within a pretty short period of time. This is a, a you know, a, a, it's a small town, but it's it's an ur- urban kind of small town. Uh, you know, right in the New York suburbs. It's, you know, there are people, their neighbors. Uh, the kids all had friends. You would have thought that within a fairly short period of time, the bodies would have been discovered, but they weren't. And that's another weird thing that, that, that fascinated me, was the bodies lay in the house unseen for 28 days. And this is, as I say, this is a, you know, a bustling small town. Uh, the, uh, the girls, uh, Patty's friends, became more and more uh, worried that she wasn't showing up. Bliss had carefully left uh, uh, phone calls with the school so that saying that they were out of town because of relative that night. But after you know a couple of weeks, this, this began to look fishy. And the kids, the high school kids, friends of Patty's, were very, very suspicious because 
they had known that she was afraid of, of uh, what her father might do. Uh, you know, but long story short, the body sat there, uh, lay there actually for uh, 28 days before they were discovered, and and that of course made national headlines when they were discovered. The house was uh, cold, so the 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 question of the the the, un, the you know the awful question of decomposition was not that big an issue uh, when the when the police finally came to the crime scene. Uh, it was it was shocking that that those bodies had been there uh, for 28 days. Um, he, in the meantime, he's gone. He's expecting that he's going to get caught, mm-hmm. but he's he's in. And, uh, he he went by us to uh, first to uh, Michigan where he had grown up, and then on to uh, Denver where he, uh, he he rented a cheap trailer. He really he was really like uh, an invisible man. He rents a cheap trailer next to a, a Holiday Inn, where the Holiday Inn staff, uh, a lot of them lived. He uh, very carefully begins to re, reform a life. He, uh, he, he, he has a, a, a Social Security card that he had gotten, um, that he had uh, swindled. Uh, and with that, uh, that was enough then. He got a bank account. Uh, he... He got a job uh, in the Holiday Inn as a sort of an assistant in the kitchen, and step by step by step, John he's now going by the name of Robert Clark. He he emerges as a real person now, with a, with a whole new life, and uh, he uh, he establishes himself in uh, the same branch of the Lutheran Church in in Denver. He uh, he he's the same. His behavior is the same. He's cheap. He's he's sanctimonious. He's he's self-effacing supposedly, and bit by bit he's accepted as you know as Robert Clark, who uh, who came to Denver. Uh, he, uh, his his backstory was that his wife had had died uh, of a tragic illness. He had no children, uh, and you know that was a time, you know again in the early seventies, when particularly in the West. You could. There were people who drifted for good reasons, just sort of drifted to the West and reestablished their lives. And it was, you know, in places even like Denver, which is of course a big, <laughs> a big city, uh, there, there aren't as many questions asked, like you know, where did you come from? But you know, a simple answer would suffice. And uh, he managed to uh, to build a new life. Uh, he met a woman at a at a church social. Lucky girl, and uh, he uh, eventually they got married. She was reluctant, but she was a widower and she was lonely. Uh, and he, he he behaved in the same way. He was he was cheap. He was he was uh, unpleasant. <laughs> he was uh, it's basically John List with another with another name. Uh, and he did that. He managed to do that for eighteen years. He he got a job as he had in his past life as a uh, a tax accountant, uh, and you know he managed. He, he just became this new guy, uh, Bob Clark. Now, Joe, his, his only problem was he uh, he and his wife, whose name was Dolores, his new wife, lived in a condominium next door to an old Irish lady named Wanda Flannery. And Wanda was a good friend of Dolores's, but Wanda did not like Bob Bob Clark, who was AKA. John List, a.k.a. Bob Clark, she thought there was something hinky about him. 
and eight, 18 years have gone by now. And, and one, she, Wanda had a habit of um, buying supermarket tabloids. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you remember the, you know, the Weekly World News, the really crazy uh-huh. supermarket tabloids, which she bought for amusement. And one day in 1989, 18 years after the, the crimes, uh, she's leafing through the Weekly World News, which is no longer, no longer in, even in business. Uh, you know, basically the tabloid with outer space stories and stuff. But inside there's a story. It's a, like the anniversary of the murders. And there's just a routine story. Where is John List? And it's just a recap. Of, of the crime. It's just the kind of thing that, you know, uh, you would see in the media, just routine, but it had a picture of John List and Wanda's looking at the, looking at the newspaper and she happens to look out her window and Bob Clark is taking out the trash with his sour face. And, uh, and she looks back at the picture and she looks at Bob Clark and she says, that's Bob Clark 18 years ago, you know, two decades ago, decades ago. And uh, she read the story and what she knew about Bob Clark's background, very little, but it seemed to check, um, you know, his, his uh, demeanor, his, his, uh, the fact that he was, a, you know, sort of a, uh, a part-time accountant, uh, the fact that his, well, he said his wife had uh, died tragically. Uh, and Wanda decided that's the guy. So she goes over with the newspaper. Bob's at the store or something. And she said to Dolores, Dolores, honey, read this. Because I think that's Bob, and Dolores reads. And Dolores, uh, now uh, I, I have to tell you, I have nothing but sympathy for for his um, second wife, Dolores. Dolores, and she's a very uh, unassuming, sort of uh, shy woman. Uh, she reads it and she's shocked, but she dismisses it, and she tells Wanda, "No, that, that you have to be you know, just uh, putting two and two and coming to, coming up with six. Uh, so Dolores puts it, puts it away, puts the newspaper away. Wanda goes back to her house. And a, a, a couple of weeks go by. It so happens, just coincidentally, back in Westfield, New Jersey, one of the, uh, two of the police officers who had, been, who had heard about this case, now it's 18 years later, had heard about this case when they were in high school, are, are now cops in Westfield. And they have sort of a, you know, a, a cop, uh, fascination with with this this dead case, and one of those cops went to uh, what's the name of that TV show? America's Most Wanted, mm-hmm. which I think was new then on the air, and they tried to get America's Most Wanted interested in the John List case. And America's Most Wanted was not interested. It was like oh, this is too old. Uh, there's there's no leads on this guy, but they finally uh, talked them into it, and America Most Wanted. Uh, put together uh, an episode on uh, partially on John List. Now, back in Denver, this episode goes on the air, and Wanda Flannery, who's who's uh, sort of brooding over the fact, she goes, she's pretty sure this was John List. Wanda looks at it and she says, "Yes, of course." But they had uh, America's Most Wanted had commissioned a sculpture uh, by a, a forensic forensic uh, artist. Uh, of what they they would expect John List to look like 18 years later. Wanda looks at that and she thinks, that doesn't look like Bob Clark at all. <laughs> so Wanda's really totally confused. However, uh, her her son-in-law is there with her when she sees America Most Wanted. And he sees that there's a 
phone number for tips and uh, some information about a, a reward. So it, it, by this time, Bob, and, I know this is complicated, Bob and Dolores had moved. They had gone, Bob had gotten a new job, and they had gone to uh, Midlothian, Virginia, where they had settled. But Wanda still had, of course, was still stayed in touch with uh, Dolores, and she had the, the, uh, the, the address. She calls with a tip, and the, the tip is accepted. Now, typically, America's Most Wanted gets, or God, I don't know how it is now, hundreds of tips uh, on, you know, most, almost all of them are just uh, dead ends. But um, it so happened that the tip on, on, uh, on Bob Clark, a.k.a. John List, looked a little interesting because, of, uh, because Wanda was very precise. And so the FBI in uh, Richmond, uh, uh, Virginia, well, let's go check this one. Now, they had a bunch of them to check out. Let's stop and, and, and see if this, see what the, what the deal is with this guy. Uh, and I think they had the, the FBI agents. I talked to them. I think it was, they had five stops that day. But they go to the, one of which, the last one on their day, was the office where, where uh, Bob Clark, John List, had his new job. And uh, they go into that office, where, of course, nobody knows anything about about his background. And sure enough, he's there. They uh, question him. They see that he, he, he matches. The, he's obviously John List. He's got a, a, a mastoid scar, the same as John List. He's obviously the same guy. He denies it. But they, you know, they collar him, and off he goes to jail. And, and uh, you know, that's the end of the John List story as uh, – up till that point, uh, he's tried. Uh, he, he still maintains he's not John List. <laughs> perfectly obviously John List, but he's tried, uh, convicted of five uh, uh, five uh, counts of first degree murder, and off he goes to a New Jersey State Prison, where he stayed until uh, he died in 1998, I think it was. Now, Joe, that's the point at which I had become involved when he got arrested in in. in uh, Virginia. Who dropped the ball because he didn't change his appearance? He still wore the suits. He went to the churches. He, the same job. Who dropped the ball because now I know it was 50 years ago, but was there a, maybe an organization? Couldn't he have been caught maybe a little quicker? Yeah, I, I think that, that's a good question. Uh, this is my opinion now, okay? Uh, the Westfield cops were full of themselves. It was a typical uh, sort of mid sized small town police department. Mm hmm. Uh, okay, they, they, they arrive at the crime scene. First of all, they had been, uh, Patty's friends had gone to the cops, had gone to the school, and said, something's wrong here, you've got to check this house out. And they didn't do that. Uh, there's obviously a reason to do some kind of a call on the house. Uh, they made a, you know, a cursory pass, pass by on the house where these bodies lay for uh, 28 days. Then... They find the body with the with the help of Patty's friends. They find the bodies. They go into the house, and holy moly, there are the, these bodies. And and then they do something that I think no no big city police department would ever do, and no really good police department would do. And that is the, they 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 screw up the crime scene. Uh, they have friends in the the local media, the small town media. They're in and. Uh, uh, there are people traipsing in the house at, at, as the as the crime scene is being uh, sort of uh, uh, 
uh, investigated. So that was part of the problem. Although they, you know, they do find the letter, and it's clear the guy's guilty. He confesses in the letter. So there was that. But then the next thing you, you have to think of is uh, put two and two together, and he, it was pretty obvious. He was like, he was devoted to this church, and he made a big point of it. And it was a, you know, a sect. It wasn't the mainstream Lutheran church. It was a, you know, a, a sort of a, a Michigan-based sect wasn't you know they were mainstream but they were definable as, as something other than you know the, the big lutheran church that you probably want to go you probably want to at least check with the the various uh lutheran churches that that are of that that branch uh which of course john list had already turned up in in denver uh they didn't do that and the fbi came in because it was a uh, uh interstate uh, it, it appeared to be an interstate uh, crime, uh, and the FBI, this was remembered the early, uh, uh, you know, the uh, early 70s when the FBI was, was jammed up on a lot of things like being involved in uh, surveillance, and the FBI was really reluctant to get involved in any kind of a, an overture to churches. So it sort of went by that uh, he, he just, he skedaddled and he settled in and nobody bothered him. And it seemed to me, and now this is again my opinion, that you could have found him if you'd looked hard enough. Uh, you know, it would have been a hard, it would have been a hard search, but you could have found him in the, in the same sort of environment. Um, they didn't. Um, and they, when he got caught, when they finally got caught, and it was only the kids, the high school kids, who uh, were, were just nagging the cops to uh, uh, check the house and affect the, the high school kids. Uh, even went into the house before the cops did. Uh, if it weren't for them, obviously, at some point, this would have been would have been discovered. But uh, the kids were on it, but the, you know the cops weren't. And uh, you know, I, I just think there was some um, bad police work involved. <laughs> and then the cops took credit for getting the, catching the guy. <laughs> like, wait a minute, it's eighteen years later, man. <laughs> Now, Joe, you, you guy has a whole new life. Yeah, he had he had eighteen years. You wrote this book in nineteen ninety. You said he was captured in eighty nine. I know there was a garbage book collateral, whatever came out. Were you ever worried that while writing this book, that someone else was going to jump the gun and and release it before you? Considering this was your first book, uh, you made a competitive book. Yeah, was that was that ever a concern with you? Yeah, that's like, what happened. Mm-hmm. Actually, um, uh, I I I really worked. I mean, I did some serious. Uh, 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 on the ground reporting on this book, and I turned it around very quickly. But there was a competing book that the uh, the cops were uh, were were cooperating. They wouldn't cooperate with me. Mm. The cops, the Westville cops, were cooperating with a couple of local reporters in in uh, West in New Jersey, and that was a competing book. And oddly, I mean not oddly, uh, uh, to my great dissatisfaction, my publisher Penguin or Signet. Uh, which is a part of Penguin, uh, got freaked, and they, uh, I, I just thought my book was, was badly published. My book is the one that, to, to this day, is the, is the go-to book on mm-hmm. this case. But there was a competing book, and that, that book, uh, you know, managed to get, uh, managed to sort of muscle its way in, and, you know, and fine, that's, it's competitive. But uh, that book didn't have what I had, which was, uh, you know, the the depth of the, of the uh, 
see the, the trickery involved in John List managing to set up a new life. It didn't have the, uh, it, it took the uh, America's Most Wanted at face value, which I never did. <laughs> uh, you know, I give them partial credit, but I certainly don't think they, I think to this day they claim they cracked this case, but they didn't. Uh, but, but yeah, there was a competing book, and you know, you live with it. So you live and learn. I've always been in competitive environments. On on paper, Joe, John List seems like a really intelligent guy. Went to Michigan, you know, served in the war. He got jobs everywhere he went. What was his issue with not being able to keep a job? It seemed that he would get hired for a job, get all excited, and then always lose it. Was it because he was socially awkward? What was his thing that he always got fired? Yeah, he. Uh, that's another good question because as I, I talked to his former employers, to people who knew him, and the rap on him was, uh, that he couldn't adapt to new environments. Uh, he, uh, his first big job was at Xerox, and it was a big job when Xerox was a young comp- uh, company. I think it was in Michigan. And he got bounced from there after a few years because he, he just couldn't get with the program. And that became that, that just became the story of John List's uh, employment life. Uh, he, he looked good on paper. He had a college degree. In uh, in business administration, uh, he uh, he looked good. I would imagine when you know he interviewed, and then he would just sort of uh, alienate people. He was an, an annoying guy, uh, and I you know I think that was part of it. But they, in Xerox, the people at Xerox said he just could, you know we were on, we were uh, we were on the move. This was Xerox in you know nineteen uh, in the sixties. Uh, that was a company that was going places, but it hadn't gone got there yet. And he just didn't didn't fit with the program. He wasn't innovation was was not something he uh, he he uh, welcomed. Uh, he he was he had grown up in a very very uh, repressed environment, sexually repressed, yes, but also socially repressed, uh, with very strict parents who who uh, uh, really kept a very close rein on him. Uh, he'd grown up as a weird kid, <laughs> to put it put it uh, bluntly. Uh, but of course, he went in the, in the Army at the end of World War II, and uh, he, uh, I think he went to, I don't think I know, he went to uh, Germany at the very end of World War II. And then in Korea, he was back in the Army uh, as a, in some sort of an accounting uh, job. And um, that's, you know, if you look at him on paper, it looks pretty good, but if you, you know, if you, you start to uh, uh, drill down. You see, oh, wait a minute, this is not what you think it is. Even in in the uh, in World War II, he subsequently claimed to have. Uh, this is when he was in prison, to have suffered from PTSD uh, as a result of combat in World War II. And I look cl- now. I'm a Vietnam veteran, and I'm so I'm, I'm kind of aware of uh, you know the serious nature of PTSD uh, and and. And List said that that was the reason. Ultimately, that was the reason he he killed his family, uh, that he that he flipped. But I I looked into it and it was like he said that he had been uh, captured by Germans in uh, at the end of World War II, you know, in, in 1945. But I looked at his record and I, you know I, I looked pretty carefully, and he really wasn't. He had sort of this was really at the tail end of the war. And he had sort of encountered some ragtag Germans who said, "You're our our, cap- our captive," and he 
he said, well, okay. But then some of the, some Americans came along and said, no, you're our captain. <laughs> and that was his, uh, you know, that was his POW experience. But he sort of, he, he lied about that uh, in, in prison when he tried to, uh, he, he, he really uh, tried to rationalize his uh, horrible actions. And he actually wrote a self-published book that was heavily dependent on this baloney about PTSD. And that, ultimately, that when my book was reissued in, 19, in, in 2017, I rewrote the epilogue to deal with that because I was curious about the fact that this guy was, 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 uh, was, was broadcasting this baloney about PTSD when, you know, I'm, I'm aware of serious uh, veterans who have serious PTSD issues, and he wasn't one of them. And I, I just thought that 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 was another reason for me to really be annoyed by this guy. One other thing about him, you mentioned that he, you know, he meticulously planned this by telling the milkman not to come and calling the schools. Yet again, he thought he might have been captured right away, like we all thought he should have been, obviously, looking back now. Was his goal always Denver or moving west? What made him choose there? Yeah, it was. Um, he he said I, at the trial, uh, what was he, how did this come up? At any rate, uh, he may have been interviewed while he was in prison, but he said, I always wanted to see the mountains. And I thought, well, <laughs> there are other ways to see the mountains than that. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, you know, if you're uh, in, in the, we're now back in 1971, if you're looking to escape, it sort of makes sense to go west uh, because a lot of people were doing that then and before that, obviously, but... Uh, he was he was savvy enough to to think that he could uh, he could maybe get away with it if he uh, if he if he hightailed it out of uh, the east and went and went to Denver, which he did. He saw the mountains. <laughs> he sure did. You can see them from Denver. You know? <laughs> <laughs> One other question uh, that you addressed a little bit in the book, but he had a stepdaughter that he adopted. Uh, she obviously wasn't killed during the the killings. Did he ever have contact with her? Reach out to her? Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, really. Yeah, she was of course horrified. I mean, mm-hmm. she had nothing to do with this. Uh, um, this was the the daughter of his wife Helen, from a previous. Helen had been married to a a, a Korean vet, a guy who was killed in Korea, and that was the daughter. And he, you know, all right, I'll, I'll, that is one good thing that you know John listed. He reached out and he tried to uh, uh, accommodate this 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 stepdaughter. Uh, she eventually left. Uh, left, you know. She she left the scene, but uh, by you know by her account, he was he was a good father. And I, you know, I will give him that. I don't I don't deny what she had to say at all. Uh, she was, of course, you know, horrified to to, to know that that this was her her uh, stepfather. But she was kind of, she was very very nervous when when I talked to her. Doing a, with good reason, I suppose. Now, doing a book like this, I'm, I'm always curious. Obviously, you didn't have a lot of help from the local police department. Was it a fun book to do? Was it a lot of hurdles? What was your impression about doing a book like this that was so in-depth? I had almost no help from the police department. I had. Uh, oh. uh, I, I am, I'm a reporter, and I, I love the act of reporting, of putting together a complicated story. So I, I really I used all the skill I had. To, I made sure I, I talked to everybody. I, I checked, I, I double checked everything. I, I traveled to do this. Uh, I had a 
close contact with uh, Patty's friends and with Patty's teacher. Uh, and they were very, they were crucial in my understanding, her, her because they saw a different Patty than you, you, you found in, in the media. Uh, they saw, this was a girl, I, I became very uh, fond of uh, the image of Patty, a, a 16-year-old girl, uh, you know, with, with John List as the father, but she was interested in the theater, she was a, a good student. Uh, people liked her. Uh, and uh, I think the fact that she was interested in the theater, uh, you know, was one of the reasons he, he saw her as a, as a cultural menace. And also, you know, there's a question like everybody was smoking weed in 1971. Kids were. And, you know, the, the father probably thought that she had tried marijuana, at least. And he was the kind of guy that that would be like a, certainly not an issue to kill for, but that would be a big deal. And uh, he was a real, he was a real prude. He didn't like her friends. Uh, you know, her friends were, you know, they, they were long haired. This was the time when kids had long hair and, and at least acted like hippies if they weren't in fact. Uh, but these were suburban kids, nice kids. And uh, their horror, once I got to know some of them, their horror really affected me because they entered the house uh, uninvited. They they finally decided we're going to do something about this and they went to the house and they entered it and they found the bodies. And then they, they created enough of a disturbance that a neighbor called the police and then the police arrived uh, ultimately and uh, you know by the, by the police in the trial account the police found the bodies. But that wasn't the case. The kids did. And that's the only I had that, and that that became very controversial during the trial, uh, because the teacher, uh, you know, who had been a mentor to Pat, the, the drama teacher, had been a mentor to Pat. Uh, he was a problem in the the trial, because again, the, you know, that was a crime scene that was messed up, and I understand why the prosecutors didn't want to get into that, uh, because I mean, this guy was obviously guilty, so they didn't, you know, that that could have been grounds for. Uh, a mistrial, maybe, and you know, they, I was perfectly understanding that uh, they wanted to make sure they just got <laughs> there was no there was no issue with this trial <laughs> to get this guy in prison. <laughs> One more thing with the drama teacher, he came off creepy and stuff. Was I reading that the wrong vibe? Because he came off like kind of a creep that he had uh, maybe other thoughts about about his daughter. Did you come? Did you feel the same way? The, yeah, he was. I, I I really I spent a lot of time with him. Because he was, he was voluble, but I thought there's something fishy here. Uh, he was, by all accounts, uh, a, a terrific drama teacher, uh, and he was dedicated. But he was, he was sort, he was theatrical, and he was uh, emotional. And there was something about him. He was extreme. He was uh, obsessed with Patty. She was a pretty 16, 16 year old girl uh, who needed a father figure and he sort of was that and he became he was and he was extremely catholic if you know what i mean by that in in the sense that he felt guilty after the after you know of course she was killed that he may have had an inappropriate relationship with her but everything i could find out was he didn't it was just that he thought that he was being inappropriate because he was so close to her so that was an issue that you know i dealt with that as best i could uh but, you know, I didn't know anything more. He was he was sort of uh, reluctant to uh, uh, 
answered the direct question, did you have any kind of, did you ever touch her? And, you know, obviously he didn't, but he was, uh, he was guilty about the fact that he must have thought about, <laughs> you know, that poor man uh, died just, uh, hor- just uh, uh, smothered in guilt. And it, he had no, no reason to be guilty. Joe, before we finish the up. It had turned to him a lot. Before we finish up, I did a quick Google search on Joe Sharkey, and a story appears about September 26, 2006. Can you take me through that tragic event? Because I, I read your New York Times article on this. I became fascinated this morning when I read this article. I was uh, – this, this is a long time, uh, much later. I was a, a business travel columnist at the New York Times, and uh, I, I went to uh, – this was a routine assignment. I, I assigned myself. Uh, nobody assigned me. I just chose my own assignments. I went to uh, Brazil at the behest of a comp- of an American company that was that had just bought a brand new business jet, uh, you know, a fancy pants business jet. And they said, uh, uh, if you, if, I, I wanted to go actually visit the factory where it was where these things are made. And they said, all right. Uh, when I was there, I, I hooked up with these guys that just bought this new. Uh, mid-sized business jet, and they said, well, why don't you, I was, I had a, a ticket on American Airlines to return to New York, but they said, why don't you um, ride back with us? And I thought, and that way you'll, you'll see the whole deal of how, how a business jet is, uh, you know, how you buy it, and uh, how you, you, you get, uh, you get it in the air, and you, you know, so I thought, okay, that'll make a fairly good column. So, okay, off I go at the, at the, uh, the, the business jet factory, in uh, near um, San Paulo, uh, there was a, a big ceremony. The, the, this shiny, big white business jet comes out, and the, all the uh, the the, uh, the worthies of the of the Embraer uh, airplane company are out there. And it, you know, it was like a sort of a uh, a uh, it was a ceremony. And so off we go. We trundle down the runway and we take off. And our first destination was across the Amazon. Now San Paulo is down southeast in Brazil, and uh, we were going across the Amazon to Manaus, which is on the other side of the Amazon, basically Catacorner, and we were going to spend the night in Manaus and then fly on to uh, Fort Lauderdale and then New York. So we're in the air, and everything's fine. It's like, oh, this is super, and two, I think we're two hours in the air. And we're now over the deepest, darkest Amazon. I mean, you know, I use that, I use that term uh, with some precision. Uh, the part of the Amazon where, you know, I, I subsequently realized where the explorers famously got lost and uh, looking for the city of gold. And we're over, they were 37,000 feet over the, that part of the Amazon. And things are going fine. We're just in a routine flight. And all of a sudden, uh, I'm sitting uh, on the left side of the plane, right over the wing, and all of a sudden, boom, the loudest noise I've ever heard in my life. And it's a huge uh, implosion. Uh, and we're like, it, the plane didn't didn't uh, rock and roll, but it just it imploded almost. And I thought, oh, my God, what is that? And I look out the window, and I see that a portion of, of the, the left wing has been, has been uh, you know, uh, chewed off what the hell is that? And uh, uh, we were obviously in trouble. We were at 37,000 feet. Uh, there was not an airport anywhere nearby. Uh, and uh, 
we're losing altitude and we're losing uh, horizontal stabilizer. We're losing, you know, we're losing the, the key things that help to keep an airplane in the, in the air. Uh, and we're flying on. And I'm watching the two pilots who were guys that I had gotten to know, uh, you know, in the, in the uh, earlier part of this uh, uh, adventure, uh, basically flying this thing like they're working like infantrymen. And, and they're, you know, the, the cliche is airplanes fly themselves. Well, that wasn't true with this one. They were flying this sucker and uh, trying to keep it in the air. And we flew for about, and we didn't know what happened. Well, nobody had any idea what had happened. Uh, you don't see, when, when another plane hits you at 500 miles an hour each, you don't see it. Uh, and we, they, the pilots saw nothing. I saw nothing. Yet we just noted. We just learned that you know this, this horrible uh, event had occurred uh finally after 35 minutes they uh and we're now losing out we're, we're seriously losing altitude we got to get down uh and we're all expecting that this is you know this is basically it <laughs> and i don't mean to laugh at that but i mean to me it's like astonishing that we uh that we maintained our aplomb on the on the airplane <laughs> uh they finally managed to get leafing through uh, charts and things like that. They find out that there's a military base down there somewhere. And now we're at the, uh, and we're out of contact. We're out of radio contact. Uh, there's no radar is not working. Uh, and uh, visually they, they spot what looks like a runway. And I, I, I'll never forget. One of the pilots said, there's an airport. He shouted out. I mean, the, the cabin door was open, so you could see the pilots. Uh, and I, I looked and I thought, "That's no airport, man. That's that's a runway." <laughs> <laughs> so we we do put down, you know. And then they brilliantly, these two guys brilliantly put this uh, this mid-sized business jet uh, down on uh, hot hot and heavy on on this uh, landing strip in the middle of the Amazon. And it turns out that it's a Brazilian. Uh, it had been secret. It isn't anymore. Uh, Brazilian uh, base in the middle of the Amazon. Um, it had been back when the military junta uh, controlled Brazil, but that was well before this time. It had been where they were trying to develop an atomic bomb. So it was kind of secret. We we put down and we were, we were like, oh my God, we we didn't die. And we get out of the plane <laughs> and there's this, <laughs> and you know it, it it's not like. Uh, the plane has steps that, that you know they sort of you, you know the kind of you know, on a, the business that they mm-hmm. they you know, they come down and and, and uh, so we come down and, and we we're confronted with this gnarly looking bunch of soldiers with guns pointed at us with rifles pointed at us because they of course had no idea where how we got there and why especially and uh, you know we're sort of like well we come in peace but you know I, I didn't speak. Portuguese and I had one of our there were only seven of us on the plane including the uh, the pilots and one of our uh, uh, one of my you know the people that were on the plane with me said oh don't worry I speak Spanish and I said <laughs> okay but they don't and here's the thing that uh, I, I don't mean to make light of this in any way but uh, I'll, I'll never forget this we had uh, in the galley of this this plane because there, it had been like a a ceremony that we were, you know, I bought this new plane. Uh, they had uh, given us a tray of fancy sandwiches, you know, the kind that 
that have the cellophane uh, uh, wrappers and the and the uh, toothpaste, the cellophane toothpaste. Mm-hmm. And we're on the ground now, and these guys have got the, these these Portuguese these uh, uh, Brazilian soldiers have guns on us. And I said, you know what? We have we have sandwiches up on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> Like an idiot, I say, I'll go get them. <laughs> so everybody's looking. I go back up the steps, and you just see the guns following me. And I come down with this great big tray of sandwiches. And I'm thinking, if you trip and drop this, you're dead. <laughs> but what I did was I sat it down between us and the soldiers. Uh, there must have been 20 sandwiches on, the, on this. We hadn't eaten them on the plane. Uh, and uh, I just motioned, and they all they all put their guns down and ate the sandwiches. So that was the uh, that was the uh, that, that broke the ice. But we were still arrested, and we were we were hauled back to the uh, uh, the main office of the, this is a, a small base with with it had to have had a hundred soldiers, all of whom looked looked gnarly to me. They didn't look like soldiers, mm-hmm. you know, but they they were they were, and uh, we were taken into custody. And questioned in the ju- in the jungle uh, all the first night, and then we were transferred by uh, a, a private jet to another to another place, a larger city, a, a city on the edge of the jungle, uh, where we were uh, held in the police station. And again, this is now the next day. Questioned all night uh, with we couldn't figure out. Um, what they wanted to know, because we we simply had no information. And meanwhile, I, I, I forgot to say that after we were arrested the first time in, in the jungle, we found out that night that uh, a Brazilian airliner with uh, 252 people on board had gone down where we knew we had uh, had the what we now knew was a collision, a mid-air collision, and uh, that this was a very, very serious uh uh, incident. This was not like us just, uh, uh, you know, landing by the, the, the by the seat of our pants. This now it, was, it became it was very quickly an international incident, and uh, the Brazilians uh, blamed us. And I could understand why they were initially uh, upset. I mean, you know, you know what I mean. It was like this uh, this collision had occurred, and we were the ones who lived when the, the much larger plane. A Boeing 737 was the one that went down uh, in the middle of the jungle. It had gone, it went down in uh, in pieces. Uh, they had clipped us. Uh, they had crashed into us almost head on. Uh, you know, took a part of our wing off, but their wing we cut their entire wing off. So it was a horrible, horrible, horrible uh, disaster. And uh, in the part of the jungle where uh, it, it took a couple of days for them to find the wreckage and the bodies. But at any rate, this is now a real international incident. And the Brazilians who were culpable because they had just had this new radar system over that they claimed solved the problem of uh, dead space over the Amazon. Uh, it didn't. And uh, uh, they were so defensive about this that they claimed that our pilots, who American pilots, had, uh, oh, it became nutty, uh, had, uh, had, uh, were were misfeasant, malfeasant, and you know eventually it became screwy that there was a criminal conspiracy. Wow! And we were in the middle of this thing, still in custody, and we finally 
got out. The, the two pilots were held for a couple of months. Uh, and when I got back home, I, I uh, encountered, you know, something a reporter never wants to be is the story. And since I was the only one who, who could talk, the others were uh, were constrained by, by uh, insurance uh, matters. Uh, I became the story, and I was like, "Oh my God, get me out of this!" So that uh, that that became a, a real ordeal that lasted for a couple of years, and uh, uh, you know, and I was basically some schmo sitting in an airplane <laughs> that, that collided with another airplane. But uh, it it got real ugly, and uh, the pilots were eventually released. From Brazil, uh, I spent some effort uh, reporting on it. Uh, you know, on the one hand, the Brazilians were 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 denouncing me for reporting on on the situation. On the other hand, back in the United States, it was all like, "Oh, you guys are are uh, you're, mir- you're, you're you've had a miracle." So it was a real dichotomy in, in reaction. Uh, but the the pilots were released. They were charged criminally. Wow. Uh, because of my reporting, I was charged uh, with a, a, a very strange criminal offense of uh, failing to, uh, of, of causing dishonor to Brazil. And they, uh, it became just nutty. It just became nutty. And uh, it took a couple of years for it to basically go away, and it, it has now. But uh, uh, what, what had been a very routine assignment became hell for me. And, you know, and obviously, don't forget that the, uh, the, the uh, I think I said 250, 152 people died in the uh, in the collision. It went down in a horrible, horrible uh, in the flames. You know. Oof. What's next for you? Don't you have a travel book coming out? No, I'm done with travel. Um, well, of course, there's no travel. Yeah, there's no traveling being done. I think I ran my course mm-hmm. on on travel. Uh, you know, I'd gone everywhere I wanted to go and written about things and it's a real hassle to, to be a tra- travel writer. I mean, it's very, you know, it's glamorous, but you got to go to swell places. Uh, I'm writing a novel, but uh, right now I'm uh, above suspicion, which is a story that was set in Eastern Kentucky uh, in the, uh, the wilds of the coal mine wilds of Eastern Kentucky uh, became a, mo- became a movie. And, uh, uh, and, the movie was shot in 2017, uh, and it, it, the book had been optioned for years. And, and when they finally called and said, uh, "Okay, we're ready to start with the movie," I thought, "Yeah, yeah, come on." <laughs> like, I don't think so. <laughs> I really didn't believe it. But the, uh, the producer who I had known said, "We've just signed Amelia Clark." Wow, and I thought, well, you know, I don't know who the heck that was, and, but it turned out she was a big deal, <laughs> and it really was a movie. And I was a consultant on the on the shoot in uh, Eastern Kentucky, a three month shoot. So that was that was like a happy ending to a uh, uh, to a already happy experience with the book. And the movie is now it's finished, and and it uh, it was about it was going to be released in the United States in March, and you know what happened in March. <laughs> and, and All the movie theaters shut down. Just give the so plug. Be released soon. You'll give the plug where everyone can read your stuff, read your articles, find your books, and find everything out about you. Oh, okay. Uh, well, of course, the book, uh, the, the the John List book is called Death Sentence, and it was it was re uh, it was uh, uh, 
a new edition I published in 2017, and it was republished by Open Road Media in print and ebook, Death Sentence, and that's the version you should get if you want, if you are interested in, in, in that story. And Above Suspicion also was republished in 2017 by Open Road Media in print and ebook, and and they're available on Amazon. You just if you put my name in, you get the you get the books. And I'll tell you, Death Sentence was one of my favorite books of 2020. Joe, this was an absolute blast, my friend. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. See you Take later, care. my friend. Bye bye.